We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, we've uh, we've heard a lot about the agriculture industry and its emissions and such, and specifically cows and the 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 gas from cows. Um, you know, it, it creates an issue. How do you how do you adjust that? How do you handle that? How do you fix that? Well, we have lower emission cars. What about lower emission cows? University of Guelph Research has led to the first national genetic evaluation in the world to help select dairy cows that produce lower amounts of methane. It's expected to help reduce uh, those farm GGEs, greenhouse gas emissions, without affecting milk production. Uh, the new tool means breeders can predict which cows will produce calves that when... Fully grown will ultimately belch out less of the greenhouse gas, even as they continue to produce as much or more milk. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Christine Baines is with or Bays is with us, professor and department chair, Canada Research Chair in Livestock Genomics, University of Guelph, and with us now. Christine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. I'm well, thanks. So how much do cows or livestock actually contribute to emissions? Uh, We've heard this in the past. Give us a bit of a lesson here. Sure. Methane, uh, which is the the, the biggest problem, really, it it made up about 14 percent of of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions in 2020. And 30 percent of that came from the agricultural sector. Um, On a per cow basis, we're talking about 500 grams of methane per cow per day. Um, but it is important to remember that in total, cows probably make up about one to three percent of of Canada's greenhouse gases. So, um, why is it? What is it about? Is it all livestock, or is it specifically cows that 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 have these issues? It's it's cows and ruminants, really. So anything that uh, eat, eats grass and has yeah. a lot of microbes in its gut to help digest that grass, those are those are the ones who are under the, the microscope here. And we, I remember hearing in the past, uh, explain the digestive system of a cow. It's, it's several, it's more than one stomach. How does that work? Yeah, it's super fascinating. When a, when a when a ruminant is born, it it starts by drinking milk, but slowly but surely it, it switches over to uh, to rumination. So it has four stomachs instead of just one like we do. And mm-hmm. actually, in in the rumen, which is the largest of those four stomachs, that's where the magic happens. There's a lot of microbes um, and a whole microbiome really that helps that the animals digest things that we can't digest, like cellulose and lignin. And ruminants will burp up their food uh, and re-chew it actually to help right. in in the digestive process and overall that um, that leads to about a four to seven percent gross energy loss for the animal so anything that gets burped out as methane is lost as an energy source for the animal um, that being mm. said ruminants are still a really really efficient way to move um to create really high value protein so that's why we haven't uh we haven't stopped dealing with ruminants quite yet so is it the cow or what it's fed it's it's a combination of all of those it's a combination of the cow what it's fed and the 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 bugs in its gut um but we've we've re- we've realized or we've seen that uh there are some cows that can eat the same as other cows and they might produce, you know, a couple hundred grams of methane more per day, although they're being fed the same diet. 
So that prompted us to start to look at the genetic background of this. And we've seen that there are some cows that are just really efficient when it comes to turning grass into milk. And those are the ones that we're trying to uh, select for breeding programs. So what's different in one cow to the other that it would produce less? It's genetics. (laughs) That's what's fascinating about it, because there really really is a natural variation between individual animals, just like there's variation between how high different humans can jump, um, some cows can turn grass into milk more efficiently than others can. So is this just about breeding the perfect cow? It's, it's a, well, in Canada, we've got a really good system for collecting information on cows. Not many people know this, but there's probably just under 70 different things. Um, we call them phenotypes that are being collected on cows. So things like how much milk they produce, but also uh, what the fat content is of that milk and and if they're healthy or not, if they're susceptible to disease or not. And what's so what's so great about this this new evaluation is that now we can also um, count for methane efficiency. Uh, I don't mean to sound as crass as I'm about to, but it's the best <laughs> way to get it through. Um, is this about burps and or farts or both? It's it's about the burps, about 95 It's the burps. It's, yeah, it's the burps. And that's because they regurgitate. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So how far away are we from breeding a cow that greatly reduces the amount of methane that it, it emits? We are pretty much there. I think we will probably be able to reduce the amount of methane produced by the dairy sector, at least by by 55% by the year 2050. And that's that's in line with the goals set by um, the Dairy Farmers of Canada, but also you know a, a series of different climate, um, climate goals that have been set nationally and internationally. So using a combined sort of genetics is, the, is one tool to address this problem, but also nutrition, and then the combination between nutrition and genetics will get us to a goal of reducing our uh, our climate footprint by by 55% uh, by the year 2050. So we're on our way. We're working really hard and uh, and yeah, producers now have a tool that they can actually use to select the most efficient animals because it's good for them too, right? Cows that are eating and producing milk instead of methane are are just using the resources much more efficiently. And production's not an issue, same production is there any downside to this? Well, not that we've seen. And we have, I mean, the, the, the genetic evaluation has been uh, published by an organization called Lactonet. They're responsible for the national evaluation. And they've, they've set it up mathematically and uh, methodologically so that there is no significant impacts on any of those other 70 traits. So it's a, it's a pretty clear, clear thing that we have to do now. My wife would ask, uh, is the technology there to implement this in humans? <laughs> uh, I can talk uh, you to your wife to about that, that later on. Yes, like. don't answer that, Christine. I'm sorry. Well, this is truly fascinating. Uh, Dr. Christine Bays with us, Professor, Department Chair, Canada Research Chair in Livestock Genomics, University of Guelph, a low-emission cow. Think of that. Christine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. 
Thank you, Scott. The U.S. uh, rolls towards its next presidential election. Uh, We remember, uh, obviously, Donald Trump back in the ring trying to uh, to get another run. However, since all of that, we've seen Vice President Mike Pence throw his hat into the ring. Obviously, more criticism of Trump of late as well, whether it's Chris Christie or whoever. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Find out what's going on. Good afternoon, Reggie. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So is Trump still the front runner for the Republican Party at this point? Yeah. uh, And uh, by several leaps, uh, the latest polling, which is a couple of days old by this point, and obviously, you know, precedes the uh, the jump into the race by Mike Pence and Chris Christie yesterday, uh, showed Donald Trump in that kind of low 50, 51, 52, 53 percent range, second in place, uh, uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida back in the 20s. And then people like Chris Christie or Mike Pence or Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or the rest are all polling in that kind of two, three, four, five percent range. So this is still very, very early on Donald Trump's race to lose, given the fact that he is beating some people by roughly 50 points. But as you mentioned, I mean, we're still early out. It is still 517 days to the U.S. election. Is this because there is a lack of credible candidate or is it because everybody is just so into Donald Trump? Well, I mean, look, there's a couple of things. Number one, uh, because we're still so early on, Trump has the loudest voice. He still has the um, the strongest support from within the Republican uh, voter base. He is simply riding a wave that really has kind of ebbed and flowed, but not receded totally since his loss in 2020, despite the fact that he has these numerous uh, legal challenges uh, and legal crises that appear to be closing in on him. Uh, he is still just uh, commanding the lead. The second part of that is uh, the people who are running in behind Donald Trump are, are trying to figure out a strategy. Is it best to play up Trumpism without going after Trump himself, like Ron DeSantis is doing, or is it better to go after Donald Trump and just kind of tamper, uh, uh, kind of play with bits of Trumpism, like we heard in the speech today uh, from Mike Pence, or is it just kind of you know good to go claws to the wall? like Chris Christie did when he entered the race and simply say, I'm going after Donald Trump because I don't like him. And he is the person who I don't think needs to be at the top of the race. This is, you know, this is a strategy that people are trying to figure out. The issue is the longer it takes them to figure that out, the more time it gives Donald Trump to continuously hold on to that base. How does it change the discussion with Mike Pence and Chris Christie now involved in this? Well, I mean, look, Chris Christie is is polling uh, incredibly low uh, at the moment. He's only been in the race for 24 hours. He failed um, spectacularly in in 2016, not making it further than sixth place in the New Hampshire primary, uh, ultimately becoming a bit of an advisor to Donald Trump. Uh, You know, he'll be a bit of a thorn in the side in that Chris Christie is not afraid to throw verbal punches. He has he's one of the, the only people who has come out in the Republican race so far to go after and and attack Donald Trump's legacy, uh, his legal crises, his personal crises, his inability to win beyond 2020, that could potentially influence other people in the race to follow suit. Mike Pence is a different story. He he backed Donald Trump for the four years that he was in office. And despite what took place on January 6th, Mike Pence, you know, has still really struggled to attack Donald Trump on anything more than what happened on January 6th, despite, uh, you know, the serious significance of that. In in his speech today, Mike Pence talked about the fact that he 
that the Republican Party needs to elect somebody or put somebody in place that's not going to have a grievance-based agenda and hit back at, again, you know, the, the criticism that he took for not, you know, quote-unquote, overturning the election. But still, even these two in the race polling significantly lower than the number two, which is Ron DeSantis, it really is hard to see at least at this moment in time, how this is going to be a difficult moment for Trump to try to deal with. If you have a Chris Christie who's constantly criticizing Trump, do the rest of them have to? I mean, as long as one person's doing it and is putting that doubt into people's minds, do the rest, the rest have to take the same sort of uh, same sort of swing? I mean, it's possible that they may have to. Uh, I think that, you know, having Chris Christie do that, again, uh, provides that opportunity for somebody else to come out and be as critical of Trump as he is. Uh, But, you know, look at somebody like Ron DeSantis, who for, you know, the couple of weeks that he's been in the race, he has hit at Donald Trump, oftentimes not using his name, just simply, you know, mentioning the former president or simply mentioning failed policies or or failed legislative agendas that didn't make it through uh, the 2016 to 2020 period. You know, oftentimes a big attack or, or a verbal attack, it doesn't need to be there. But, you know, it could result in in a kind of better move for Ron DeSantis. If Donald Trump starts taking his, you know, negative energy and leading that towards the people who are attacking him, does that provide an opportunity for Ron DeSantis to then move forward? I mean, again, we're still so early out here that, you know, everyone's still trying to figure out how the race goes here. We also still have to figure out, is Donald Trump going to be in this race much longer, given the fact that we could potentially by this week see more indictments laid against him? Uh, That was my next question. The future of Donald Trump's legal woes. Uh, I mean, look, there's reporting out, I mean, within the last couple of minutes here, Scott, that says prosecutors could be ready to ask grand jurors tomorrow uh, uh, by tomorrow uh, for a vote on a Trump indictment on charges of obstruction of justice and Espionage Act violations. This is all, you know, related back to the Mar-a-Lago mishandled classified document saga if those indictments say they come down tomorrow this is going to have a huge uh legal impact on the the former president and potentially get in the way of his ability to run this campaign uh you know from within a courtroom um you know this is going to be something that the republican candidates are going to seize on it is going to be something that donald trump and his legal team push back on but again the walls are closing in and he is pushed into a corner and these very serious charges if they happen, could happen as early as tomorrow. Uh, Mike Pence, is it possible for him to attract former Trump supporters considering his role as vice president? Well, I mean, look, uh, on January 6, 2021, there were Trump supporters that were standing outside of the Capitol that I saw with my own eyes yeah. uh, chanting, uh, you know, hang Mike Pence, calling yeah. Mike Pence uh, a traitor, saying that he committed treason against the United States. It really is hard to see how some of that group is going to change their mind Uh, even if he is, you know, the one who manages to get to the top of the ticket, uh, because he ultimately went against what that vast majority wanted. And that was for him to overturn the election and give it to Donald Trump. You know, Pence is of that kind of classic conservative Republican era that doesn't really exist within the GOP anymore. And despite the fact that he may hit a more conservative tone than someone like Donald Trump did, especially on issues when it comes to uh, to abortion, it may not be enough to drag over the supporters who still see him as the reason that Donald Trump didn't get a second term. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this, talking about uh, the Republican Party and who they will choose to run in the next presidential election. Reggie, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Were you aware there was an underground rail, uh, railroad in Canada? The Salem Chapel Underground Railroad Cemetery Project searches the Niagara region for the forgotten graves of former slaves who fled the United States in the 19th century. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Adam Montgomery is with us, Niagara-based historian researching Canadian medical and cemetery histories. And you can learn more at Canadian... Uh, sorry, CanadianCemeteryHistory.ca, CanadianCemeteryHistory.ca, and Adam is with us now. Adam, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much for having me, trying to stay indoors today. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So explain to everybody what the Underground Railway was. Well, the the Underground Railroad was uh, basically a a hidden network of, of people in the United States and Canada that worked together to help people that were enslaved to escape bondage and eventually make their way either to northern states in the United States or or on to Canada. And how important was this system? How important was this route? Well, there were many routes and and it was very important because it gave people a chance to escape and have freedom and and uh to try and basically start over again, start a new life and and to yeah, to to live free. Why is the Niagara region such an important part of this history, St. Catharines? Well, the Niagara region was, uh, you know, uh, basically a a home to many uh, people who escaped enslavement, freedom seekers. And St. Catharines in particular was uh, was a hub for many of them. And its most, you know, its most famous resident in the 1850s was none other than Harriet Tubman. So she's the big draw on the Niagara Freedom Trail, people, and especially the Salem Chapel, people wanting to go and see where she worshipped in St. Catharines. It's on Geneva and North Street in St. Catharines. So people can still go today and and go tour the church and see the place where she worshipped and where many other freedom seekers spent their days. And and a lot of them lived around that area. I remember working in a radio station down there, uh, the White House of Rock, and uh, mm-hmm. going down into the basement and seeing tunnels that actually went out into uh, the river and such. This also a part of that of that railroad. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, the area was. You know, by the time, what makes St. Catharines particularly so important. Uh, was that the the great abolitionist and you know lecturer historian many things Frederick Douglass the United States one of the faces of, of the 19th century abolitionist movement um, noted in his in his memoirs that St Catharines was a terminus so that's one of the ways that the city was known for sure to be a place for freedom seekers and so we're essentially trying with our project to, uh, well, I guess I'll let you get to that. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> well, no, go ahead. Tell us about the cemetery project. Yeah, we're like essentially, so uh, very quickly, my background, I love old cemeteries and I'm a historian, uh, you know, BAMA, PhD in history. It's been most of my life and um, friends with with Rochelle Bush, who's the, the resident historian at, at the Salem Chapel. And we got talking in the spring of 2021 um, about, you know, what can we do to, you know, what what can we do to find some of where these people are buried and, and hopefully if they have gravestones, bring them back above ground. So that's what, that was the kernel of an idea. And then we spent the better part of the last two years researching 
um, looking at burial maps, records, talking, even talking with people in the, you know, the Historical Society of St. Catharines and various other people who had knowledge of the area to figure out where these stones might be. And then from there, it was partnering with with Alan Ernest, who's a gravestone restoration specialist. He does it full time during the summer and uh, he's worked in cemeteries for 30 years now. So all of us kind of formed this beautiful partnership with all three of us having different skills and skill sets. And, and it all has come together nicely where we've now been able to uncover some gravestones for some prominent people in St. Catharines of the time. And um, we're hoping to uncover more as the time goes on. Is this about locating lost graves or the gravestones themselves, which will obviously identify the grave? This is about, well, it, we're, we're working at Victoria Lawn Cemetery in St. Catharines, which is still an active and operating cemetery. And thankfully, hmm. um, you know, it's been around since 1856, but they have some detailed records and, and they, we have a sense of, and, and a knowledge of where a lot of them are buried. The question was, do they, did they have gravestones in the first place? And if they did, what happened to them? And, and then from there, actually searching to basically to find out if, the, if they are, there is one or not. Where do you see this going? What's the objective? Well, I mean, it's kind of twofold. On one hand, the idea is to make a tour of it, a walking tour of it with an app so that people can, people in Niagara and beyond, tourists, whoever, wherever they're from, can come to the cemetery and download the app and then learn about the people whose stones we've found and, you know, basically make an underground railroad walking tour there to add to some of the people and stones that are already known there. And then on the other hand, we're hoping, you know, from a historical, philosophical, whatever you want to call it standpoint, you know, we're hoping to to get more Canadians interested in this history because it's an important part of the nation's history. And um, up until recently, it wasn't really wasn't really that widely covered. A lot of people hear about the Underground Railroad and they might kind of hear bits and pieces about it. But I think with a project like this, you know, you have textual sources like docu, you know, like old records, whether it's church records, burial records, whatever, which are important and special in their own right. But there's something beautiful and tangible about a gravestone because it sort of reminds you that these were living people and, and that they had lives and that, you know, in this case, that a lot of them escaped terrible lives in the United States and came to Canada and tried to make a better life for themselves here. And I think standing at that site and having something to look at, that tangible connection to the past is something that I think will help get people a little more interested in it. Dr. Adam Montgomery is with us, Niagara-based historian researching Canadian medical and cemetery histories. You can find out more at CanadianCemeteryHistory.ca, the Salem Chapel Underground Railroad Cemetery Project, searching the Niagara region for the forgotten graves of former slaves who fled the U.S. during the 19th century. Adam, good luck with this. Fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know about the ongoing drag-out invasion, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now Ukraine is dealing with a humanitarian and ecological disaster as flooding engulfs much of the southern Kherson region uh, after a major uh, hydroelectric power plant dam was damaged, sending water uh, downstream. Dr. Jack Cunningham is with us, Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. And here now. Thanks for the time, Jack. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Hope you're doing well too. 
So what exactly happened here, Jack, and and who is responsible? Do we know? We don't know yet, and we've got uh, charges flying from both sides against the other, the Ukrainians insisting the Russians did it, and the Russians arguing that the Ukrainians did it. And there's also the... Uh, the theoretical possibility that this simply happened of its uh, of its own accord. So we uh, we don't know. So anything we anything we say about it has to uh, has to be regarded as somewhat speculative. So we do is- know though that it has consequences. Uh, the um, the ecological damage is going to be considerable. Uh, all sorts of ecosystems will be uh, damaged if not destroyed. And the uh, the de- the uh, the Kakovka Dam and the reservoir behind it irrigate much of the agricultural heartland of southern Ukraine. So that's uh, that's going to create uh, create a lot of difficulties. And of course, the flooding in itself creates a humanitarian catastrophe. On the military side, since the uh, the river Dnipro is, is separates uh, Russian and Ukrainian forces, it's now uh, very difficult. For the Ukrainians to uh, to, to uh, continue with uh, with a counteroffensive in the Kherson region, because much of the territory they would have to traverse is simply flooded over. Hmm. Why would Ukraine do this if uh, if it, it was them? And and what are the chances that this just naturally happened? Well, the Russians argue that the Ukrainians are trying to do this in order to distract attention from a counteroffensive that's failing. Uh, I, I I think that's uh, that's rather hard to swallow. Um, we don't uh, we we don't we don't know if it, 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 we we probably won't know for some days exactly what happened, what what caused it. My own guess is that the uh, the most likely explanation is that the uh, the Russians did that because they're the ones who primarily gain from it. Although it's it's not inconceivable it was an, an accident. Uh, have there been any reports of sabotage or explosion or anything to lead uh, one to believe that it could have been Russia? Uh, we have uh, we have reports, but uh, they they can be uh, they can be regarded as uh, not yet proven. So at this point, we're largely operating in the dark. So what does this mean for that area in the immediate future? Uh, where it, can they recover from this? Or is this something that is going to need uh, a massive amount of attention to get under control? It is going to need a massive amount of attention. There are, uh, there are settlements in the vicinity where the water level could rise up to 12 meters, which is considerable. Uh, there are whole towns that uh, that could be or have been simply washed away. So the humanitarian consequences are are not to be sneezed at by any stretch of the imagination. There's also the uh, the theoretical possibility that uh, things could take a darker turn because 80 miles upstream from the Kakovka Dam is the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear reactor which relies upon water from a pond attached to the reservoir to cool the fuel rods that uh, that uh, that are used in the reactor there now the uh, international atomic energy agency reported today that because this pond is separate there sh- there should be enough water to cool the reactors for some months um but if uh, if that pond itself were to go uh we could be looking at a somewhat more dire situation can help get in to address this right now? 
that would uh, that would require the Russians letting it uh, letting it get in to address the situation. Uh, Mr. Zelensky has reported that uh, the Ukrainians have made efforts to rescue people and uh, and address the situation, but have been fired upon by uh, by Russian troops. So that, so it's uh, it's hard to see uh, how uh, how this can progress. Considering where Russia has been in this fight and the fact that it has dragged out and taken so long and they haven't done it as quickly as they thought they were going to, this seems like quite a uh, an attractive strategy. Is that accurate? I think it is an attractive strategy. It uh, it makes the uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive harder and it uh, it distracts Ukraine's uh, attention with this uh, ecological and humanitarian disaster. It's it's all very well to say that governments are capable of dealing with two priorities at once but uh dealing with both a a war a, a war brought on by invasion and uh humanitarian and ecological catastrophe is asking a lot so this is going to uh complicate life considerably for for Ukraine is this a turning point in this uh battle uh it's too early to say it's uh, it's it, it certainly has the potential to be one because if the uh, if the uh, Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive is indeed uh, reversed or uh, or strangled in the cradle, uh, that in itself would have the would have the capability to change the trajectory of the war. And I think there was already some danger that the counteroffensive was being oversold in some quarters. I mean, remember the uh, the Russian forces are fairly well dug in. And uh, this would not be uh, easy pickings by any stretch of the imagination. What do you see in the immediate future, Jack? In the immediate future, I see uh, continued uh, continued flooding, uh, ecological catastrophe, uh, probably uh, and, and probably some difficulty for Ukraine on the operational front, given uh, given the difficulties of mounting any sort of operation on the Dnipro River now. Dr. Jack Hennig. region, I think, is largely frozen as a theater of the conflict. Dr. Jack Cunningham with his Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, Ukraine, dealing with the humanitarian and ecological disaster flooding as a result of a hydroelectric power plant dam that uh, certainly looks like uh, some sabotage involved there. Jack, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Canada Special Rapporteur on Foreign Interference. David Johnson calls the allegations swirling around his objects, uh, objectivity quite simply false and plans to push ahead with his work launching public hearings into next month. Um, I, I find it fascinating that, um, you know, I, I don't think anybody's questioning David Johnson's resume or his character or the work that he's done in the past. I, I think what people are questioning is the perception of bias since he is so close to the subject, whether it's the Trudeau Foundation, whether it's the family, what have you. Uh, and whenever anyone raises concerns about that, David Johnson or the Prime Minister plays the victim. You're attacking David Johnson. You're insulting him. You're assassinating his character. That's got nothing to do with that. It's about the perception of bias. But again, it appears the crisis management company is doing their job and trying to distract us and look, oh, it's an attack on David Johnston. No, it's it's not an attack on David Johnston. It's a perception of bias moving forward. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you. 
Are you surprised that David Johnston is kind of playing the victim whenever anybody addresses any of their concerns about what he is doing? It always turns to his character, or it's a character assassination, or his resume, or you're questioning his credentials. It, it, it's it's not about his past or his resume. It's about the appearance uh, or the perception of bias because he's so close to the subject here. Is there a bit of spin going on here to to make the the, the special rapporteur look like a victim? Lots of spin and uh, lots of unanswered questions. Uh, And he just took a step backwards yesterday in terms of uh, his credibility on this by admitting uh, in response to several questions from MPs that he didn't do a full investigation before he reached his conclusions. And so there's many more documents to look at. He, he, He himself described it as there was an ocean of documents and we looked at a large lake. Well, that leaves most of the ocean not looked at. So why so are you drawing conclusions? Ar- that's my next question. How can you arrive at a conclusion without, uh, you know, whether it's talking to Elections Canada, whether it's talking uh, to the Liberal MP that was uh, allegedly uh, in conversation with those related to the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, how can you arrive at a conclusion without doing the homework? When you take the wrong job that you shouldn't be doing and decide you're going to do it no matter what, uh, no matter what anyone says, and you decide it's okay to do it badly. I mean, that's the only way (laughs) for him to have taken the job when he's, according to David Johnston himself, has a long-term friendship with Trudeau, a person whose actions he was judging, for him to then get an ocean of documents, only look at part of it, knowing that the initial target only gave him uh, essentially two months before he was supposed to report his conclusions. As soon as he found that, you know, however many pages there are and that he wouldn't be able to look at them all, he should have said, I need an extension. But he should have said no to the job in the first place because of the friendship. Then he should have said, I need an extension. And I need a long extension because there's thousands of pages. There's an ocean of documents. His description again. And then uh, he wouldn't have drawn any conclusions yet and still should have resigned and should have resigned, never should have taken the job. What can I say? It's a layer cake of conflicts of interest, lack of due diligence and and negligence. That's what we've seen from David Johnston. It seems that the Prime Minister's defense is to defend the character of David Johnston as if he is being attacked by everyone else who's not a, who, who's not accepting of this. And then the Prime Minister also brings up the point that Pierre Polyevra won't take the meeting, the top secret meeting that Jagmeet Singh says he's going to take. How significant is that meeting for Pierre Polyevra? Is that something he should be doing? Yeah, let me just talk about the character of David Johnston. First of all, Judges step aside from some cases when they know one somebody involved in one side or the other and are friends with them. Yeah. And it's not a comment on their character. It actually shows they have good character that they step aside. It doesn't well, matter like, what you do in the past. When you like have an appearance a of jury. a conflict of interest, you have an appearance of a conflict of interest and you have to step aside. And we go through this when selecting a jury all the time. I mean, it doesn't yes, matter what a great exactly. citizen you are. If there appears to be a conflict because of the relationship, then sorry, you you have to step aside and maybe next time. That's right. Uh, in terms of what uh, Pierre Polyev is doing, he's making a mistake. Go and look at the documents and say, oh, well, you know, I was told there's an ocean of them. And 
uh, I've asked questions about the ones that I've received and said, are there more? And every time I've asked that, they're going to say there's more because David Johnson already confirmed that, that they, if, if he's saying to the opposition party leaders, go and look at what I looked at, that's only a lake and there's an ocean of documents. And then come back and say, well, from what I saw, I disagree with Johnston's conclusions. And also, there's a huge ocean of documents out there that he didn't even look at. Of course, we needed an inquiry. I, th- I think, I don't know what, what Pierre Polyev did, but I'm guessing he decided I'm going to take a stand and say it's a trap. And then yeah. hasn't backed up on it, doesn't want to seem to be a flip-flopper. But I'm quite sure that that's what uh, Jagmeet Singh is going to come out saying is... I looked at the documents. I disagree with them. That there's some. I think there's solid evidence there, and uh, there's an ocean more of documents, as David Johnson's admitted. We need someone independent to look at that. And How long is it going to take for Jagmeet Singh to see that? To see those documents. To see the documents, and for this to actually happen, yeah. Uh, I don't know how many documents there are. Um, it, it it it's a, a lot. Um, David Johnson had a team headed by a lawyer who has only donated to the Liberals from 2006 to 2022, another layer in the layer cake of conflicts of interest. So it could take him a while. Um, and uh, Or he can just quickly review them, um, you know, look at the list. They'll provide him with a list, I'm sure, and he'll say, I want to see certain ones in particular that are key. But it's very easy for him to come back and say, I disagree, David Johnson. There's there's uh, some solid evidence there. There's lots of questions raised by these documents. There's an ocean of other documents, according to you. So let's all t- choose someone together. And that's the most important thing, is that the prime minister can no longer choose his own watchdogs. Not inquiry commissioners, not auditor general. Election Canada head, head of the RCMP, which he's doing right now, ethics commissioner, which Trudeau's doing right now, all behind closed doors, integrity commissioner, Trudeau cabinet choosing that person behind closed doors. You cannot have the ruling party cabinet choosing their own watchdogs, not inquiry commissioners, not police, not any of the officers of parliament that watch over and ensure democratic government. So let's choose someone, have all the party leaders sign off on a person who will do an inquiry that will be viewed as much more impartial and uh, independent because all the party leaders will have signed off on them. Tough Conagher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, the David Johnston, uh, the special rapporteur, David Johnson, still in question over his role in the foreign interference uh, committees. Duff, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton's air quality is uh, obviously deteriorating due to the wildfires as it is over most of southern Ontario. Uh, wildfires up in northern Ontario, Quebec and such. Uh, northern wind blowing down and here we are. Let's bring in Dr. Sally Radisic, health hazard specialist with Hamilton Public Health and is with us now. Sally, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Yes, I am. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Sally, what is the message from Hamilton Public Health Services considering where we are right now? So the message is really to be informed, to check the air quality health index, to understand what the levels are, and then to follow those health messages that are provided by Health Canada. 
How is what we're seeing today, um, how bad is it? Uh, remember the old days when there was pollution or, or smog days or such when we were still burning coal for, for electricity in southern Ontario? Uh, how does it compare to other pollution days, per se, of the past? So... Uh, there is variability, you know, pollution will be uh, worse on some days, better on other days. And so, you know, generally speaking, um, we have improved air quality in the city of Hamilton. This, of course, is a bit of a different situation with the wildfire smoke. So who is at risk here? Uh, who is this? Who should who should heed this message uh, about being careful and, and limit your time outside? So all of us should be aware and informed, but there are individuals who are at increased risk. And so those individuals would be um, individuals who are older adults, greater than 65 years of age, children, uh, individuals with pre-existing respiratory conditions such as asthma or COPD, um, individuals who have pre-existing cardiovascular issues, uh, individuals who spend extended periods of time outdoors, and pregnant people. So these individuals are at increased risk, but all of us are at risk, of course, of air pollution. How do we manage this? Uh, Should we stay inside? Um, When do we realize that perhaps this is getting too much? So as I indicated, it's really important that we check the levels. determine what the AQHI value is, and then follow those health messages. So today we had periods where the messages from Health Canada indicate that we should avoid strenuous activities outdoors and really reschedule those uh, outdoor activities so that we can be better prepared to have those activities during times when the air quality is safer and better outdoors. How will this affect us, the average person? What will we feel? So you can experience some mild symptoms and some of those mild symptoms would include headaches, mild cough, a runny nose. You could have production of some phlegm in your throat. You could have eye, nose and throat irritation. And these symptoms typically will uh, be managed once you get out of that smoke uh, area and you can drink some water to, to sort of flush out the system. There are some more serious signs and symptoms, which include dizziness, chest pains, wheezing, including asthma attacks, some heart palpitations. If an individual is experiencing these symptoms, the recommendation is to seek medical attention. And obviously those with asthma or breathing difficulties should be most aware of this. Yes, of course. And they are part of that at-risk population identified by Health Canada. And what about a mask? Does that help in a situation like this? So uh, wearing um, a mask, if you're outdoors, um, really would have to meet the occupational health and safety standards. So you'd have to have a mask that was intended for this type of exposure. Um, Simply wearing a regular mask uh, may not be protective. So the recommendation, again, would be to follow Health Canada's messaging and really uh, reduce that outdoor activity and being exposed to air pollution outside. So the other the old mask that we used to have during the uh, pandemic, not necessarily doing the case we need something like an n95 mask to really make an impact here right so you would want to have a mask that is certified for this type of exposure and this type of pollution um, which generally the the general public wouldn't have access to this would be something that would be in an occupational setting Uh, any relief in sight what will relieve us of this 
So if you check the AQHI, you'll notice that it is currently updated all the time. So you have to look and determine what their values are. I looked just now and it seems to be gotten a bit better since midday. So it's important to sort of be aware and to be checking um, to determine what the levels are because they do change throughout the day. And it really depends on wind direction, does it not? Yeah, so the wind direction also makes uh, impacts the um, the amount of exposure. There are a multitude of uh, other factors, so it's really important just uh, to be aware and to be able to access that information throughout the day. Dr. Sally Radisick with us, health uh, health hazard specialist with Hamilton Public Health Services, talking about the air quality in and around the Hamilton area due to the wildfires, and be mindful of it if you are out and about. Sally, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the latest from Campbell Clark in the Globe and Mail. David Johnson's testimony raises more questions about his report on foreign interference. And to talk more about this, the author and chief political writer for the Globe and Mail, Campbell Clark, and here now. Campbell, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, and you? So far, so good. Um, we'll get to what you're talking about in just a second in regard to it appeared that he didn't have uh, the special rapporteur didn't have all of the information to answer questions. But I wanted to put something by you. It seems that and, and we were questioning why earlier on, um, you know, David Johnson would need a crisis uh, uh, management team to help him through this. But I think we now we now find out after watching this from yesterday, it seemed that when anyone ever raised any concern about David Johnston and what he was doing, he would spin it and play the victim and and instead start selling his resume and his character and that none of that should be questioned. And whenever you did question something, uh, then he would he would say, well, look at my stellar reputation here, where it's not really about his past or his stellar reputation. It's about the present and the perception of bias today. He didn't seem to address that he 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 seemed to come at it with a different answer almost honestly i think he doesn't see it at all like i think the reason that he answers these questions by saying no one has ever questioned my integrity before even though people are saying you know there are some facts here about whether you have had a relationship with the trudeau's the trudeau father the, just the current prime minister but his response is always uh these are not facts these are allegations and there is no conflict of interest and nobody has ever questioned my integrity before and i honestly think when i look at david johnson saying those things that he believes it. he doesn't think anyone should be questioning his integrity to me you know the truth is they're not really questioning his integrity well some people are actually and maybe that's why this is happening because there are some pretty aggressive attacks from some corners of the house of commons but largely what's happening here is people are saying there are some facts here that say there's a perception that maybe you're not entirely impartial and maybe you're not the best person for this job. And I don't think he sees that at all. To me, it's very much like an analogy when selecting a jury. I mean, obviously, there's a pool. They bring everybody in. They start questioning them all. Both sides, prosecution, defense have to agree that there is no perception of bias, that they are a neutral citizen, that they can listen to the evidence and then make a accurate decision at the end. And, and, and you know, it doesn't matter what the citizen's uh, background is. They could be a stellar citizen, but it just doesn't fit this time because of the closeness to the subject matter. Isn't this the same thing? 
Yeah, I think that it probably is. I mean, let's admit we're in the world of politics here where the arbiter is being, you know, buffeted by a back and forth all around him from politicians who, you know, the government's going to say that this is an honorable man and you have to go with his authoritative report and the opposition is going to say, uh, you know, there are some questions about whether he's the right person. But, you know, all of this stems from the fact that he is in an unusual position to begin with, that he was handed this unusual role by the prime minister. And the allegations were already pretty far down the road and there were already calls for a public inquiry. So he was thrown into that. And the fact that he was not somebody who was without any tie to the prime minister or his family is obviously a failing uh a failure of the appointment. I, I, I don't think there's any other way to say that, is there? Like, if you're the prime minister and you're looking for an independent rapporteur on things that have to be kept secret, it should be somebody that has absolutely no tie to the prime minister. Um, we we heard that uh, he perhaps didn't uh, wasn't aware of all of the information. Uh, no. He he talked about a sea of information. He's only looked at a lake, uh, not questioning election officials or even the liberal uh, the liberal MP Han Dong, who there was allegations of his involvement with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, how can you go there, or even the, some of the discrepancies between he and Aaron O'Toole's uh, testimony? Uh, how can you even arrive at a decision? So this is, I think, was kind of a new thing that we saw yesterday in his testimony because, you know, he'd issued a, what he called a first report, which was essentially the sort of fact-fighting report about all the allegations of things that had happened and how the government may or may not have failed to respond to them internally. And what we saw yesterday were there, there were some discrepancies, in fact, several discrepancies. You know, he was asked, why didn't you meet with the commissioner of elections, who's the person in the office that is supposed to investigate elections irregularities? And he said, well, at the time, there were no allegations of uh, irregularities that they were pursuing. And in fact, there were. And then he sort of changed his response that there'd be no finding uh, of actual irregularities. So like, there were some, some instances like that that were a little hard to follow. There were uh, things reported in his report where he didn't seem to clarify the actual version of events. And then in a pretty important case, there was Aaron O'Toole, the former leader of the Conservative Party, who stood up in the House of Commons last week and said, CSIS has briefed me that I was and my party were targets of Chinese foreign interference in the 2021 election, and directly so. And Mr. Johnston was asked, how come you didn't find that that was a direct state operation by the government of China. And Mr. Johnson's answer was, I worked with the best information I had available at the time. Well, this, his report was issued two weeks ago. And if we, if there's substantial information about something that large that might have changed since, well, we're clearly not dealing with the authoritative last word of Chinese foreign interference. Now, I'm not saying that there was nothing of value in David Johnson's report. Actually, there are some interesting things. But I think what we saw yesterday in his testimony were some questions about whether he had gone through enough, uh, had done enough of an authoritative report for everybody to say, yeah, that's good enough. What's next here? What's the next shoe to drop? Uh, Jagmeet Singh says he's going to see the top secret information. We don't know when or what the timeline is there. Should Pierre Polyevra? Should he go and uh, see the uh, information and get yes. himself cleared? Well, he is cleared for security, I suppose. Look, they both said that they 
uh, are declining because it would muzzle. I'm not sure that that's true. I don't think either, though, that the party leaders necessarily have to swear those oaths and see the information. There are MPs on a committee of parliamentarians. It's not a parliamentary committee. You can look into the background of this, but mm. there are MPs who will be sworn and will be able to see that uh, information, the classified information, and they can report on it. And the question is, how much can they report on it? And if they can issue sort of relatively expansive and detailed reports and one MP can dissent from the conclusions of the others, then that could be a useful thing. The problem, however, is if we don't trust the authoritative reporter, if we don't trust one person who has seen the classified information and is giving us a, a relatively complete report on that, then there hasn't been a sort of level of transparency that I think is probably needed after all these allegations and, you know, cross currents of information that we've heard over the last several months. Campbell Clark with us, chief political writer for The Globe and Mail. Uh, in today's uh, David Johnson's testimony raises more questions about his report on foreign interference. Campbell, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Many thought that the Bank of Canada would keep its uh, its, its, per, uh, its benchmark interest rate steady on Wednesday uh, amid fears. Uh, well, it, it turned out wasn't the case and raised it a quarter of a point amid fears that a hot economy could mean inflation gets stuck above its 2% target. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thanks for the time hope you're well uh, my pleasure scott uh, thanks very much and i'm doing very well other than the uh the smog and the smoke and the yeah. uh, uh hanging over ottawa right now i can it's very very gray dark and overcast and smoggy yeah we've certainly seen uh, shots of that in pretty much uh, all over southern ontario but ottawa it does seem to be getting it uh, pretty bad so why yeah. these interest rate increases now many uh thought that they would stay uh level at this point are you surprised no, and not because I'm trying to tell you I'm clever or prescient. I simply read the uh, speeches and the interviews of the governor of the Bank of Canada and the deputy governors who form the governing council that make the decision. If one reads those speeches, and they uh, every week there's somebody giving a speech because I think there's five deputy governors, and fortunately they put the written speech or the they they write up the speech and put it on the website so you can see their views they're very transparent and they're very very clear governor macklem has been clear as a bell uh, i've been very critical of him for driving rates way too low and keeping them w way too low for way too long but he's finally he you know acknowledges mistakes and now he's correcting his mistakes he's very transparent about that and he said we must get down to 2% inflation. He is not, he has not wavered on that. He has been saying that day in, day out, week in, week out. So today, and when one looks at the inflation data, we are not at 2%. This is not a secret, the StatsCan has the data. We're somewhere around four. Okay, significant reduction from a year ago, from 8% down to 4%. Interest rate increases do work. There's the data, there's the evidence. However, 
they're not where they have to be, which is at 2%, where there's a wide consensus, not just in Canada, around the uh, the high-income countries, the so-called OECD countries, by economists, by central bankers, by policy analysts, the 2% is the Goldilocks rate of inflation. Not too high, not too low, not too hot, not too cold. We're not there. So knowing he said we must get there, and we are not yet there, all I did was connect the dots and say, well, that means there's going to be additional rate increases. And there was. Should he have paused on the rate increases when he did? Because many thought that was it. It was over. Um, should he have kept going then as opposed to pausing it and then having another one now? I think he. Um, it, it, this is more of a minor criticism on my part. I, I'm much more critical of him when the, he and the bank of that. When I say him, let's not personalize it. When the Bank of Canada drove interest rates down to 0.25, that was so irresponsible. That was lower than the Great Depression that ran for 10 years and one third of Canadians were out of work. Lower than World War II, where millions and millions of people died. I do not believe that any serious person can argue that the, what, eight weeks, okay, two months, six months, eight months, 12 months of the pandemic was greater or worse than the Great Depression or World War II. It wasn't. We should never have gone that low. We should never, ever. And Mohammed Al-Aryan, the very distinguished chief economist in Europe, has said the very same thing. We were living in a fool's paradise, driving those rates down way too low, and they left them too low too long. Okay, that's my criticism of the Bank of Canada. But as I said, they're fixing it. I thought that um, in the last turn, on the last announcement, that you know when you finally decided, okay, we went down the wrong road, we're fixing it, don't take your foot off the pedal once you've decided you're going down that road. Because all you're doing is allowing those forces that you are confronting to come back or to resurge. You know, years ago, I wanna tell you a very personal story very quickly. Years ago in my 20s, I used to smoke cigarettes. My mother and father, who are virulent anti-smokers, you say, please quit smoking, please quit smoking. And so I started to quit smoking, but then I, what I would do is I would quit smoking for a week and then I'd say, well, I've got to reward myself because look I've, how good I've been at quitting smoking. Let's go have a cigarette. Well, that's what we did. Mm. We rewarded ourselves by taking our foot off the gas. They should have kept the foot on the gas, said, look, we the inflation's not down to two, we will increase it again, and if indeed we hit 2%, then we can start bringing rates down. You were talking about the unemployment rate, and right now sitting around 5%, which is historically low. Um, Incredibly and, low. And, yeah. and a lot are having a hard time explaining that. Uh, how does that factor into all of this? Because as you said before, normally when this sort of situation happens, uh, unemployment rates are quite high. Yes. Um, I'm going to, I want to be careful, but I'm going to be very blunt. Um, you know, you have a wide audience. You probably have some professors from McMaster's and and the the, the chattering classes. And I'm one of them. Uh, professors and uh, progressives and liberals have been spouting this narrative really since the beginning of the pandemic that Canada is on the edge of going over the cliff. There's massive levels of skyrocketing poverty. And we're just we're almost doomed. This is nonsense, Scott. This is utter nonsense. I said it in 2020. This isn't, you know, armchair Monday morning quarterbacking. The economy is very strong. So is the U.S. economy. Incredibly resilient. 
It was resilient in 2020. It was resilient in 2021. It was resilient in 2022. And yet the pundits and the decision makers in Ottawa persist in this false narrative that the economy is very weak and we're in deep trouble. No, we are not. If you look at the data which the governor is acknowledging, the economy is running too hot. We are spending too much, not too little, too much. Sales of both goods and and services. Restaurants are all filled to the rafters. The planes are stuffed to the rafters. We can't argue out of both sides of our mouth that the economy is collapsing over the cliff. And by the way, it's growing like hell. You can't make that argument. We are, we still, now, for those who say, don't you understand, Ian, there's people that are suffering. Yes, because not everybody has been hit badly. I argue about roughly, roughly, two-thirds of the economy, two-thirds of us are doing very well. We got lots of money and we're spending like no tomorrow. One-third of us are getting hit very hard and they are finding it very difficult. Food prices, gasoline prices, inflation. So you can't, where the mistake has been is we monolithically assume either we're all doing very, very badly or we're all doing spectacularly well. That's not true. It's much more nuanced than that. Two thirds of the economy, roughly, the top three quintiles, if you want to use the language of statistics and income, are are quite comfortable and doing well and they're spending and they are spending. And the bottom two quintiles are finding it a lot tougher and they are they're the people you hear about at food banks so i'm not trying to trivialize them i'm not denying or ignoring what they're saying i'm just saying that two-thirds with the money are are spending and we have inflation that is too high and so we need to get it down and we have all kinds of income support programs to help those people that are suffering at the lower end of the income scale dr ian lee with us associate professor sprott school of business carleton university bank of canada raised its benchmark interest rate today uh, Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. Thank you. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? So far, so good. Breaking news. I don't know if you've heard much about this. Lionel Messi says he's joining Miami of uh, the MLS. Uh, this after winning the World Cup, another giant player coming to the MLS, uh, obviously for a, a good size of cake. What are your thoughts as, as we see this happen? He, uh, so, okay, so let me tell you something. I've been out of the office. I've been away from Internet and stuff all day. I've been down at the Canadian Open uh, in mm-hmm. Toronto covering the golf. So you telling me this, honestly, first, almost the first I've heard of this. I had just caught a whiff of it before. As soon as I hear this, I think of David Beckham joining the LA Galaxy about 15 years ago, which I don't know how much of an impact David Beckham had in MLS. I don't. I, I, I don't think it was the impact that they thought maybe it would have. However... 15, 20, whatever it is, years later, soccer is in a very different place in North America. It's in a very different place. And I think that Messi, I I would be shocked if there is an empty seat in any stadium where he plays for Miami at any game, home or away, this season or for however long this contract lasts. Why would you not go see him? Even if you're only a casual soccer fan, to me, Messi is in the category... I don't know if it's exactly the same, but, you know, if, if 
in his waning years, if you had never seen Wayne Gretzky play and you had mm-hmm. a chance to go, you would go, even if you didn't really know a lot about hockey, because it's Wayne Gretzky. You know, and you can pick a number of other athletes. I think he. I think that's him. I. I don't know that this changes soccer in North America, but I think it just reinforces, or at least will probably bring out some new people who may never go to another game again after seeing him, but they just want to see him. But I think he'll sell tickets. Good point. Uh, all right, let's talk about the Canadian Open. Is all the buzz about the merging of Live and the PGA, or are we talking golf? Uh, well, there there is a little talk about golf, but no, that is unquestionably the story. Keeping in mind that the guy who is the other than the Canadians, other than Mackenzie Hughes and Corey Connors and all those guys, uh, the, the guy who is the fan favorite is Rory McIlroy. He's won it a couple times, and mm-hmm. he was probably the face of the PGA Tour's standing its ground against the Live Tour. He was the guy who stuck his neck out the most and took on the Live Tour. So, Rory McIlroy being in Toronto, I mean, yeah, he it is it is front and center. This story and and here's the unbelievable thing about this is if it, the Canadian Open last year got usurped in a lot of ways because Live held its first event up against the Canadian Open. So now you've got golf writers and golf fans who are having like this their attention pulled in every direction. Now you're coming up to the Canadian Open and this story breaks and nobody's talking about golf again, not much anyway. They're all talking about this story. This is two years, and this is one of the other things that's been talked about a lot. This is two years in a row that the Canadian Open has had the rug pulled out from under it. And yeah, serious fans are still going to watch it and stuff, but it is not the golf is not the playing of golf is not the number one focus of attention right now, not by a long shot. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the six o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great one. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we greatly appreciate it. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This time from Mr. Lowe. Wildfire smoke damaging our lungs. Bank of Canada raises interest rates again. David Johnson, I am the victim. What next? Flying discs landing on the White House lawn or in Ottawa, I'm getting out of here.